Lessons from peacemakers who didn't keep the peace. Lessons from peacemakers who didn't keep the peace. Acts 15, 30 to 40. If you have your copies of God's word, please turn in them to Acts 15, 30 to 40. As you're turning to Acts 15, 30 to 40, a quick whirlwind review of what we've seen so far in the 15th chapter of Acts, which I may point out the 15th chapter of Acts is a pivotal, important chapter in the Bible. We've seen already in the book of Acts, chapter 15, the following things. Number one, we've seen that there was a serious doctrinal debate that arose in the church that was at that point 50 years old, and it was a debate over law versus grace. You can see that in verses one to five of chapter 15. The second thing we've seen is that that doctrinal debate was settled by a formal council that was convened. And the council was made up of respected church leaders with James, the leader of the mother church in Jerusalem, chairing the council. You see that in verses 6 to 18. Still with what we've learned in Acts 15 to date, number three, that the Jerusalem council properly, correctly ruled that Gentile believers in Christ did not need to keep the Old Testament law to be saved or to be part of the church or to be sanctified. That was a proper decision. Verses 19 to 27. The fourth thing we've seen so far in the chapter 15 is that this Jerusalem council also directed the Gentile believers in the various churches to live at peace with their Jewish brethren. Somebody has to begin a peace process in your marriage, in your conflict of your marriage, in a conflict perhaps in the church. Somebody has to begin a peaceful process of reconciliation. And at the Jerusalem council, the council ruled that the Gentile believers were to take the first step toward peaceable coexistence with believing Jews in the baby church. And four prohibitions were given to the Gentile Christians. I'll let you read about them in verses 28 to 29. These four practical prohibitions given by the Jerusalem Council to the Gentile believers in the various churches were given so that the Gentile believers in those assemblies would not disturb their Jewish brethren in those assemblies nor annoy them. And last, what we've seen already in chapter 15 of Acts is that a letter, which we now know to be Scripture, was written by the church leaders who made up the Jerusalem Council and it was published to make sure the council's ruling about this doctrinal debate was known in all the various local expressions of the church. The letter that the council generated was clearly intended to make peace inside the churches between those who believed on Jesus who were Gentile and those who believed on Jesus who were Jewish. It was a peacemaking letter that was scripture. But alas, (laughs) sorry to say, ironically, a lack of peace popped up almost immediately after the council's ruling to promote peace in the church. And this particular lack of peace, which popped up so quickly after the council, was a lack of interpersonal peace. It was a lack of ministry peace. It was a lack of how to process the failure in another Christian peace. Peace. 
And the eye popper of that failure to promote and have peace, the eye popper was that the particular lack of interpersonal peace and ministry peace and the lack of how to process failure in another Christian peace was among respected Christian leader missionaries. Maybe the last people that those who were privy to the Jerusalem Council's letter of decision would ever have imagined that wouldn't keep the peace. Paul and Barnabas. I'm going to read the whole passage with you to start with. Acts 15, 30 to 40. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter, that is from the Jerusalem council. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go now, go back to visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. <laughs> I love it. The Bible is so real. The Bible is so very, very real. The Bible presents believers with all of their shortcomings, believers with all of their rough edges. The Bible applies no cosmetics to cover flaws of character. The Bible makes no avoidance of attitudinal and behavioral imperfections in believers. I mean, think about it. Think about how the Bible tells it just like it was for so many Bible characters. Adam and Eve, they figured they could outsmart God and then they could hide from him. Abram misled them in Egypt to protect himself. Noah was revealed to be drunk in his tent. Jacob was described as a liar, a deceiver, a dishonest person. Moses doubted that God could use him, and he was a murderer because he was a hothead. Lot and his daughters committed incest, and lust and alcohol contributed to the sin. The Bible puts no cosmetics to cover the blemishes of the characters in the Bible. Doesn't avoid attitudinal or behavioral shortcomings of people in the Bible. I go on. Gideon was pessimistic and fearful. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab and Gomer were prostitutes. David was an adulterer and a premeditated murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran away from God, at least he thought he did. Naomi was bitter and very angry with God as 
Deacon Terrence Pinder preached on so well recently. Naomi was bitter and very angry, as I say with God. All of Jesus' disciples fell asleep when they were told to pray. Martha was a worrywart. The Samaritan woman was repeatedly divorced and then shacked up with a man who wasn't her husband. Peter assaulted someone with a deadly weapon. And then he also denied even knowing Jesus. And here, in Acts chapter 15, Barn, Barnabas and Paul were mad enough with each other to part company and to stop doing ministry together. <laughs> Believer, you know that you have failed. And I'm here to tell you it's equally true that I have failed. And the fact is, we all have failed. But the Lord can use failures. <laughs> the truth is that God only uses failures because that's the only kind of persons there are compared with God. We're all failures. And it was ironic in some respects that after this big formal council met and ruled on getting along with each other, Jews and Gentiles, that Paul and Barnabas failed. They failed to get along with each other. They failed to agree on who to take along on their next missionary journey. And their disagreement was so sharp that two missionaries had a temporarily irreconcilable difference. <laughs> Peacemakers who didn't keep the peace in a particular ministry matter. Probably some of you listening to this sermon are at times when we are not proud of, like Paul and Barnabas. We have been persons who have downgraded ourselves for, from being peacemakers, the Sermon on the Mount, to being disturbers of the peace in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our church. So I am encouraged, and I hope you will be too, that the verses before us today that chronicle the failure of Barnabas and Paul to get along, that these verses will be taken by us in our wallets and our purses and our notepads and our minds and our hearts to help us not be peacemakers who don't keep the peace. In reading through the passage quickly, you heard the verses, but now I'm going to go through the same passage and stop regularly to point out some lessons. These are lessons that you and I can learn from Paul and Barnabas, who were supposed to be peacemakers, who came to be peace disturbers with one another. And these six lessons will help us. They're as current as the clock ticking seconds off the hour at this moment. 
So the first verses, there will be six lessons. The first verses to reread are 30 and 31. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter, verse 31. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. What was the letter basically saying from the Jerusalem council? The letter was basically saying, God is a God of grace. And it's the grace of God that saves a Jew who believes in Christ. And it's the grace of God that saves a Gentile who believes in Christ. God is grace. God's gospel is grace. God's sanctification of a believer is grace. And so my first point lesson is that grace encourages because when the church read the letter from the Jerusalem council, it says they were encouraged. Of course they were. Why? Because the grace of God, when properly understood, is always encouraging. Late this past week, an Adventist person came to do some service on the parsonage, and we t- I just asked them how... how they believe about salvation and sanctification and different things. And I said, would you like to know what I believe about salvation and sanctification? He said, yes. So I explained to the three circles I used, the person's trusting W works to get right with God, C plus W, Christ plus good works, and the circle just plain C, Christ. In the course of explaining the gospel to this fine Adventist man, service man, What a joy it was to my heart to see him being encouraged by the grace found in the gospel. What an encouragement. Dispense God's grace. Dispense his word, which is gracious. Dispense his way of salvation, which is gracious. Dispense his graciousness in setting a believer in Christ apart for his possession and use. Be grace dispensers because it encourages Everyone, you will show God's grace to. They'll all be encouraged. That's worth rejoicing over. And it says in the verses I read, they rejoiced over the letter because the letter was laced full of grace. So they rejoiced. Timeless principle. Grace encourages. It's worth rejoicing over. Second lesson from verse 32. Now, Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted exhorted and strengthened strengthened the brethren with many words. The lesson in these, this particular verse is that biblical exhortation strengthens believers. Biblical exhortation strengthens you and me as believers. It was Ian Murray who said, preaching is not men teaching from the Bible. It is God teaching from the Bible through men. Biblical exhortation strengthens the believer who will hear it and believe it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, you know the verses. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why, is it, why do we have scripture given us? That the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped 
for every good work. That verse is, two verses are saying that biblical exhortation sometimes involves biblical reproof. Other times it involves biblical correction. Other times exhortation from the Bible involves instruction. You might look at it this way. The Bible is profitable for reproof. Hey, you're off of God's path. Correction, here's how you get back onto God's path. And instruction in righteousness, here's how you stay on God's path. Biblical exhortation is precious. Romans 12 verse eight. In the, gift of, in the listing of the gifts of the Spirit in Romans 12, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, that's an excerpt, a partial list of the spiritual gifts. But a spiritual gift is to exhort based on Scripture. Now, you can't say to me or anyone else, I don't have the spiritual gift of exhortation so I don't exhort anybody. No, this is saying that some people have the Holy Spirit endowment to specially, effectively, consistently exhort others from the word of God. But all of us have a role to play in exhorting others in the truths of scripture. Because biblical exhortation, by definition, will strengthen the person who is exhorted. And will you notice that usually, Proper biblical exhortation needs to be lengthy. It needs to be developed. It needs to be detailed. It needs to be comprehensive. It needs to have accurate exegesis, a fancy word for saying taking the truth directly out of the Bible and not reading your own truth into the Bible. That's eisegesis. Exegesis is taking from the grammar, the dictionary meaning of the words, the tense of the verbs, the historical context, What's already in the verse, exegesis, takes that out and in this application, then you exhort others with an accurate interpretation of scripture. It takes time. Biblical exhortation is not a slave to the clock. It says in verse 32b, with many words. It says that they strengthened with exhortation with many words at the end of verse 32, with many words. Do you know what sermonettes produce? Christianettes. If you are looking for a sermonette here every Sunday, you're in the wrong place because sermonettes produce Christianettes. Proper biblical exhortation is not lazy, light, unresearched, unexplained, and unapplied devotional spiritual thoughts. You know, two stories and a poem. Rather, in contrast, proper biblical exhortation is careful, accurate, exegetical exposition of scripture. Now, by God's grace and for God's glory, I seek to preach and to teach the word of God, Bible book by Bible book, Bible chapter by Bible chapter, Bible verse by Bible verse, word upon word, line upon line, precept upon precept. In fact, the attention to detail that I strive to have 
before daring to stand before you as a congregation with the Bible between me and you, the degree of detail even comes down to the nature of the letters within certain original Greek or Hebrew words, very letters that make up the words. I've been called to do this and have sought to apply myself diligently to do this study and preaching for 41 years now. And for 41 years, it's been my high responsibility and my profound pleasure to preach and teach God's precious word to God's precious people so that they will be strengthened spiritually. And that is what God has done. He's honored his word these 41 years. And as it is exegeted and exposited and interpreted and applied, God's people, you are the most recent version of the people I've had the privilege of preaching to, has been changed, strengthened by biblical exhortation. After a magnificent musical concert, an admiring woman approached the concert violinist virtuoso and said, oh, I would give my life to be able to play the violin like you do. And the master musician wasted no words. Excellent, madam, that's exactly what it will take. Pastors who are obeying God work hard and long and, in fact, give our lives over to the Word of God so that the people of God would be loved and helped and taught and encouraged and strengthened. So what have we seen? We've seen three lessons from two guys that should have kept the peace but broke the peace with each other. We've seen, number one, that grace encourages. We've seen, number two, that biblical exhortation strengthens. And now we come to our third lesson from verse 33. Let's read verse 33. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. The third lesson is that meaningful Ministry takes time. It's not microwave. It's crockpot. Meaningful ministry takes time because ministry is relationships and relationships take time to deepen in trust and openness and transparency and self-revelation. Meaningful ministry takes time. It says in verse 33 that they stayed there for a time. Of course they did. Because meaningful ministry takes time. Because relationships take time. This is not rocket science, but pastoral impact is directly proportional to pastoral tenure. Put another way, the longer a pastor ministers among a particular congregation, the greater will be his spiritual impact on those particular persons. That works in small groups too. The longer a small group in our assembly stays together as a small group, the greater will be the spiritual impact on every member of the small group. 
the longer the group is a group. You learn to trust each other, keep confidences, pray for each other with specificity, help each other. The longer a small group remains a small group together, the greater the spiritual impact on every person in the small group. Are you in a small group? You're missing out if you aren't. The fourth lesson from these guys that didn't keep the peace, although they were to be peacemakers, they didn't keep the peace with each other, so we learn number four, it's better to be sent than to just decide to go. (laughs) The Lord Jesus was sent, of course, by the Father to the cross, and he told his disciples just prior to the cross that he sent them out to do the work that he wanted continued. It says in John 20, verse 21, so Jesus said to them, the original disciples, Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. The normal Christian life is the sent Christian life. Those who had been sent from the mother church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch were later sent back to the mother church in Jerusalem from the church at Antioch. They were sent in both cases. In both cases, they only went wherever they were sent. We as Christians should be sent people. Persons who are on marching orders from on high. And again, to say it again, believers were sent from the mother church in Jerusalem to the satellite church in Antioch, and then those same Christians were later, after the council in Jerusalem, sent back to the church in Jerusalem from the church in Antioch. Verses 30 to 33. So when they were sent off, sent, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter from the council. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the the brethren with many words, and after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles." We, as Christians, are properly not masters of our own ships. Instead, we Christians are integral parts of a collective body, the local expression of which is Calvary Bible Church. And in the body called Calvary Bible Church, none of us can say, I'm the master of my own ship. I don't need you. I don't take my orders from the scriptures. You can't say that and be in the will of God. Christians, in point of fact, are not masters of our own ships. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. We are no longer our own, according to 1 Corinthians 6. We are part of a larger family. Thank God. And that larger family may identify us and send us to where Christ wants us to go. That's how it's safe. When assembly of believers and their leadership identifies you and says you should go there, then it's safe. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And so, it's better to be sent than just to go. Fifth 
lesson from verses 34 to 36. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there, and Barnabas and Saul, show me, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. The fifth lesson from these peacemakers that didn't keep the peace with each other over ministry, the fifth lesson is that proper ministry is not hit and run. I've been in two rear-end accidents since living in the Bahamas. In both cases, the guy that hit me from behind gets out of his car, both cases. I get out of my car. Soon as I pick up my phone, he says, they say to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm phoning the police. They took off. <laughs> hit and run. Hit and run. Christian ministry is not to be hit and run. Why? Because proper Christian ministry loves persons too much to be hit and run. Paul's pastor's heart made him to want to circle back to where he had already ministered the gospel on his first missionary journey. Why? In order to see how the believers who came to faith in Christ, once they heard the gospel from Paul, how they were spiritually doing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul likened his pastoral care of the Thessalonian believers in Thessalonica, he likened himself to a nursing mother and to an exhorting and encouraging father. So please, don't ever forget that proper ministry is heart to heart, not head to head. And heart to heart ministry occurs in our assembly set up in small groups. So don't miss it, that for all the Apostle Paul's intellectual brilliance, and he was brilliant, for all of his intellectual brilliance to be a scholar, and he was a scholar, he had the loving heart emotions of a spiritual dad. Persons were very dear to Paul. Are persons dear to you? You say, well, Pastor, if I don't have to answer that out loud, you ask me, are persons dear to me? In the quietness of my heart, I have to admit they really aren't. Not so much. I mean, do you know how hard it is to make a living with a minimum wage in the country the way it is? I don't have time for people. Do you know how my family demands of me to support my grandchildren or I really, I get peopled out, Pastor. I would never raise my hand and say, people don't matter to me, and I'm peopled out. But it could be, easily, that people in the sound of my voice, if the curtain is pulled back on your heart, people don't matter to you as much as they used to. COVID did a number on that. Paul was a people person. And so he prayed and he went back to those churches and he sent others back to check on those people in those churches and he wrote scripture and he invested time and tears in those people in order to make sure that every single individual believer who came to faith in Christ in his gospel ministry were doing well in their spiritual walks. 
<laughs> you say, if the truth behold, Pastor, people don't matter to me as much as they used to. People don't matter to me as much as they did for my parents. People don't matter to me as much as they did for my grandparents. People don't matter as much in this church to me as they used to be when the church was younger. Do you know how you give a kickstart to caring for people and making sure that you love them and they're important to you? You join a small group. That's how you learn to hold persons in your group as very dear. That you could pick up the phone at three o'clock in the morning and phone someone in your group and you know that they would pick up the phone and they would talk to you. Persons were very dear to Paul. Proper ministry is not hit and run. It loves persons too much. You remember at the end of the epistle to the Romans that Paul mentions 36 persons. 36. This evidence is beyond refute that people mattered to Paul. It evidences that the apostle Paul was a people person. And every pastor should be a people person because the ministry is people, not paper. And every Christian who's equipped by the word of God through the preaching of a sound preacher ought to be a people person because Christ died for people, not paper. And on the second missionary journey, over three and a half years' time that it took, Paul and Silas, that was his new ministry partner, did in fact return to the first missionary journey's places and plus they made contact with persons in new places as well. They got to Syria, Sicilia, Derby, Lystra, Phrygian and Galatian regions, Mycenae, Troas, Samothrace, Neapolis, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Centria, Ephesians, Ephesus, excuse me, Caesarea, and Antioch. If there was airplanes back then, these dudes had frequent flyer miles. They got around, but it was driven by ministering to real, individual, snowflake, fingerprint unique people. Last lesson from. Verses 37 to 40, you ready? Lessons from guys who were meant to be peacemakers who didn't keep the peace with each other. 37 to 40. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Sicilia and strengthening the churches. The lesson, the last lesson from guys who should have kept the peace but didn't is number six lesson from verse 40, there is more than one way to look at ministry and more than one way as to who should do ministry. Paul valued standing up to pressures. Barnabas valued recovering from 
not standing up to pressures. Paul was mostly interested in the work. Barnabas was mostly interested in the worker. They had more than one way to look at ministry. They had more than one way to size up who was qualified to minister. Warren Wearsby observes this, Paul looked at people and asked the question, what can they do for God's work? Barnabas looked at people and asked, what can God's work do for them? Both are valid questions. The question, what can a person do for God's work is a valid question. And the question, what can doing God's work do for the person who does it? That's a valid question. And both of those valid questions find answers in the grace of God required for ministry. The grace of God required for ministry to flesh out the ministry takes the grace of God. Verse 40, again. But Paul chose Silas and departed being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. It's time to land the plane. We've seen six lessons from otherwise commendable Bible missionaries charged with keeping the peace by the Jerusalem Council's letter, who in one instance to do with their ministry had irreconcilable differences and didn't keep the peace with each other. They got mad at each other and they went separate ways with separate people. What are these lessons? I'm recapping these lessons because I want each of you, with the Holy Spirit's help, to pick one of these lessons that you're going to put into practice this week. First lesson, grace encourages. May I ask you if this is your application point, who will you encourage this week with the grace of God? For me, it was an Adventist fine gentleman. Who will you encourage this week by the grace of God, about the grace of God? Second, possible application. Biblical exhortation strengthens believers. Does God bring to your mind a special person that needs biblical exhortation? They're off the path. They need to have ex exhortation to call them in repentance back to the path. You know such a person? Maybe you're hearing this sermon so that you will decide by what day this new week you will minister to that person with biblical exhortation in humility and love. Third possible application, meaningful ministry takes time. Relationships take time. Maybe as I was preaching about that, the Holy Spirit was tapping you on the heart and saying, you're all together in too fast a hurried pace the way you live life. Maybe that's why you sit on the horn when the person ahead of you doesn't move instantly when the light turns green. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been pointing out to you in the quietness of his ways. Slow down. Take time. Build relationships. 
be willing to get in a small group to build relationships. Another possible application, it's better to be sent than just to go. This is a good one. I had to learn this one over the years. After I was 30 years old in Christ, I began to understand this. I was doing things that were burning me out, wearying my soul, concluding that Jesus' yoke was not easy for me and his burden was not light for me. Do you know why? Because I was doing things Jesus didn't send me to do. Mrs. McGillicuddy sent me to do it. Mr. Harbinger, I'm picking names, hopefully nobody has the congregation. (laughs) Mr. Harbinger, he sent me to do something that he wants me to do. And I was just kowtowing to all these different voices. It's better to be sent than to just go. Can you identify this week things you are doing that you're not sure God sent you to do? You find anything? Stop doing it. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Fifth possible application. Ministry is not hit and run. It loves people too much. Have you been doing any hit and run ministry? Because it reveals you don't really love the person you're ministering to. They're just a number. They're just a case. They're just an irritation. They're just a bother. Repent if you have any hit and run relationships. Sixth and last possible application. There's more than one way to look at ministry and who should do it. Maybe your application this week is to revisit with your Bible in hand your perspective lens on ministry as a whole. What do you think ministry is? And how do you know if you're successful in ministry, proper ministry? The number of people in this ministry is not, it's, it's uh, indication of its success. Our faithfulness to complete our mission given to us in the word of God of making fully committed followers of Jesus, faithfulness in doing that is when Jesus will say that Calvary Bible Church is successful. Maybe you look at somebody and you'd say, boy, what they're doing doesn't impact many people. So what? Are they faithful? Is one person enough? To minister to worthwhile? Yes. Revisit your lens on ministry. Still on that point, revisit your opinion about those who minister. Let me give you a challenge. When was the last time that you saw a teenager in this assembly and you stopped You went up to him or her, and you said, I love you, and I'm glad you're here. Have you found something to do to serve the Lord in our church yet? Would you like some help to find something? When was the last time you walked up to a child, got down like a baseball bat catcher, if your knees will take it, 
I love you. I'm glad you're here. Would you like to find out ways you could serve Jesus even at your age? I haven't cleared this with Pastor Drew, but uh, Pastor Drew and Sister Kelly Fowler are in, in our small group, and they have two fine children, as most of you know, Clay and Jace. Clay is four? Four. They come to our small group. All the children of the people in our small group come to our group. They're welcome. Beth has injured her back in Canada helping my parents, and she's been on bed rest. I'm so glad she's able to be here today. Icing her back, taking it easy, so on and so forth. So, Clay, where's Sister Beth? Oh, she has a sore back. She's, she's in the bedroom resting. Can I go see her? I said, well, I'll have to go look to see if she's presentable. And then Drew, Pastor Drew and Kelly said, no, he doesn't always get to know what, do what he thinks of. You know, maybe we just say, just let Sister Beth have some space to rest, right? So, so, Clay, so Clay didn't come to see Beth, uh, but his heart was there. Child, four years old, four years old. Beth gets a phone call from Clay with Daddy helping. Hi, Sister Beth. How are you? That's the body of Christ. I challenge you. Today or next Sunday, you seek out a child, seek out a teenager, and you affirm them and encourage them and tell them they're needed and that they're loved and there's a place for service and serving Jesus Christ right here in Calvary Bible Church. Clay served Jesus Christ by picking up the phone in his beautiful way saying, Sister Beth, are you okay? There's more than one way to look at ministry and who should do ministry. <laughs> pastor Jory, our discipleship pastor, I've asked him to come up and to close this message in prayer. And as he comes, just let God's word percolate into your minds and hearts. Which of those six things would God have you to do this week? Pastor Jory. What a, what a wonderful message, what wonderful reminders. Um, <laughs> you brought nothing to the cross, right? Except your failings. That's what we bring to the cross. That's what we, that's what we have is our failings. A term Christian, yes, the New Testament identifies us as Christians, but man, it gets used in such loose ways now. Anybody can be identified as a Christian, right? Um, maybe that's what we should start calling ourselves, failures. Failures, maybe. Well, I want to encourage us this morning with something. Uh, if you are a failure and you are a Christian, <laughs> uh, you have something to offer uh, Calvary Bible Church's small groups. Um, if you have no failings, uh, you really shouldn't come because that's kind of what it's for, <laughs> to bear one another's burdens. Uh, the burdens that you have, the sin that you bring to the table, uh, this, uh, this environment here on our Sunday morning worship where we're learning to love God and study of God and come closer to God uh, is a difficult venue to bring those things out, isn't it? 
you get into a smaller group, in a, in a group that has uh, learned to love each other, that has learned to, to bear each other's burdens, uh, you can expose yourself. Um, this nice suit that I have is really just a covering, isn't it? Uh, if I was to take it off, you would see warts and all. <laughs> um, that's what small groups do, is they allow us to be exposed. They, they allow us to expose ourselves to a, an environment uh, for growth, to, to reveal the things that are in our life so that we can bear one another's burdens. So I wanna encourage you this morning, um, if you have failings and you're a Christian, which means you have at least one gift, according to 1 Peter, uh, you have a place within a small group. Uh, you, have, you have a place that you can come. Um, bring your gifts and bring your failings, and I can promise you're welcomed, okay? Everyone be encouraged with that this morning. Don't let that be something that keeps you from joining a group. Uh, don't let that be what keeps you from joining a small group. Let it actually be what motivates you to come into a small group. We have space in multiple groups that are already existing. Uh, simply call uh, the church uh, on my days that I'm there, or if you have my cell phone, feel free to call me there, send me an email, or again, once again, on our church's website, uh, there's a spot up there that says small groups. If you click on that icon, uh, you'll see a short video as well as a way to put your name, who you are, and your contact information. That will send me a direct email, and I'll get in touch with you, and we'll get you linked in with one of those groups. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your, uh, for your word this morning. Lord, it is exactly how you have revealed yourself through your word. Thank you for your servant, Pastor Rob, who has exposited it so well. Uh, Lord, may we now, through your, the strength and teaching of your Holy Spirit, apply these things appropriately to each of our lives individually. Father, I do pray that you would strengthen and grow this church through your word, whether it be in the general assembly that we're in now or within the smaller groups as we gather together throughout the week. Father, use these different venues to bring glory and honor to yourself and to grow each of us in the likeness of Christ. All to your glory. And God's people said, amen. amen.